Christ Jesus is the image of the invisible God. This is the claim from St. Paul in our second reading. But why does he say this? Well, I think it's because God knew that ethereal concepts are hard to love without physical manifestations. Meaning that by him giving us an image of something invisible, he focuses love. He makes love tangible. And if God is love, as we always tell children he is to make them feel better, if love is made tangible by Jesus, then he also makes God tangible for us. So now we have to wonder at the logic behind why God would do this. And I think it is because this is how we as humans work psychologically and sociologically. We as humans love concepts like love, but a concept is not as good as having the person you love in front of you to shower with whatever love and affection is appropriate. So when he took on flesh in the incarnation, he gave love arms to hug us back. And that action shows his extreme humility. That the supreme divine being would act in a way similar to something that he himself created is the epitome of humility. Paul continues, For in him were created all things in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. Now I want you to imagine with me the tiniest particles known to man, protons, neutrons, and electrons. They're back from high school chemistry, folks, okay? These literal building blocks makes the possibility of reality possible, even though we cannot see them. Whoops, this homily is printed on double-sided tape. So, sorry, someone else printed it out for me and I went from one to three and got very confused. Let's rewind, shall we? Okay, we're still back at protons, neutrons, and electrons, but these building blocks of humanity are so small that they cannot be seen with the human eye. But the Lord has given us will, intellect, and imagination. And we, through inspiration, have come up with the science which reveals even more of creation to us. Those things which exist, but are invisible to us. But invisibility does not mean non-existence. It simply means that we may lack the vision or the tool through which we can see the reality actually around us. Now, speaking of unseen heavenly realities, we have spoken now of the smallest particles known in the universe. But let's go to the opposite extreme, shall we? From subatomic particles to the super celestial bodies that dwarf our own planet, making it look like a speck of dust compared to their size. The same God that created the smallest quarks, protons, neutrons, and electrons has also created these largest bodies in the universe. Sometimes we can see them with the naked eye, but other times, through magnification tools, we can see them so much better. So, when I can't see the moon, does it mean that it doesn't exist? Or does it mean that it still exists even though I cannot see it? Up until now, we've been speaking of natural mysteries things that we cannot see with the naked eye. But allow me to go a step further. For supernatural grace builds on nature, my friends. 
So could it be that since I have provided you with multiple examples of things in the terrestrial and celestial realms that are true, even though we cannot see them, could it be that there exists the possibility of heavenly realities existing, even though we cannot see them? We have gone from the natural to the supernatural. Now, let me give you biblical precedent, lest you think I'm a crazy person. In the old, per- in the old person, sorry, in the Old Testament, 2 Kings chapter 6, 17 through 20, we have an account of where Elisha, the prophet, was surrounded by an enemy army. Now, his apprentice asked him, whatever shall we do? And Elisha prays, O Lord, open the eyes of my servant that he may see. And in response, the Lord does this, and it says this, The Lord opened the eyes of the youth so that he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. Elisha could see, but his apprentice could not. But that does not mean that either of them were any less protected by these heavenly realities. So now we return to the words of St. Paul in the second reading that he speaks about invisible or visible things, and then he mentions four specific things. Thrones, dominions, principalities, and powers. I have just named you four of the nine choirs of angels. Now the name angel, or angelos in Greek, it doesn't translate to fat baby with wings and a harp. The word actually translates, I'm sorry, the word actually denotes a function. For the word angel means messenger. Now, the Eucharistic prayer that I will use today, Eucharistic prayer one, at one point, and you will know that this part is being prayed because you will see me join my hands and bow down, but it says this, in humble prayer, we ask you, almighty God, command that these gifts which we are offering be borne by the hands of your holy angel to your altar on high in the sight of your divine majesty. But remember what I said, the name angel denotes a function, not an identity. So we can act angelically when we deliver the message of the gospel. But this is not what this prayer I am talking about is trying to tell you. What you would never know by just hearing this, because you cannot see the text, but what you would never know is that the word angel is capitalized. And as I heard a Catholic bishop recently tell me, in this instance, the word angelos being capitalized refers exclusively to Jesus Christ. For he is the word of God, the Logos, the one word spoken by the Father at the beginning of all time, containing all words that would ever exist in himself. So the church is praying that the invisible God who created everything that we have discovered and all that is yet to be discovered, who does not stay invisible, but revealed himself to us in flesh and blood and made love tangible. We are asking this humble God-man that he himself would take the offerings from this altar to our Father in heaven. And by doing this, we ask him implicitly to act as the eternal high priest and at the same time eternal victim, offering himself as the only acceptable sacrifice on our behalf to God the Father, surrounded by the nine choirs of angels. This is truly what the incarnation of the Trinity does for us. Now, I have just spoken to you roughly 1,100 words of our theology that was the result of St. Paul's two sentences in Scripture. 
The scripture, just like the world around you, contains so much more than what you may think if you just look at it once. Now maybe you feel cheated that I have only preached on two sentences out of a possible four scriptural readings this day. So let me tell you this. Jesus speaks in the gospel about loving God with your entirety, your heart, being, strength, and your mind. If we understood the world in which we better, I'm sorry, in the world in which we exist, if we had an appreciation for the natural and often truly miraculous around us that we consider mundane, if we were, under, if we were better able to understand the beauty of creation in our neighbor, none of us would be capable of treating another human with anything other than love, honor, and reverence because they are made in the image and likeness of our God. It would be creation living in the closest possible way to the Garden of Eden.